One thing I, I quickly realized as I was doing the research for this, this project is um, that networking isn't just something that people use to advance their business. It, it is a business. A whole industry has grown up around networking. So first you've got this, this endless supply of instructional manuals or self-help books. Um, and these are supposed to help you master the skill necessary to be an effective networker. So these are some of the books that are out there for the kind of novices, and then it gets a little bit more, more serious. Uh, networking like a pro. This, the author of this book, Ivan Misner, was described by CNN uh, as the, the father of modern networking. An entrepreneur magazine called him the world's networking guru. He's also the, the founder and, and chairman of the world's largest business networking organization, and I'll say a little bit more about those shortly. Um, Networking like a pro, brilliant networking, savvy networking, confident networking, highly effective networking, non-stop networking, masters of networking. Uh, this is another Ivan Misner production, and that's him there, looking very suave. Um, and it kind of just goes on and on. Uh, there's even a, a niche market out there for uh, self-help books directed at people that aren't otherwise inclined to network, people that find it sleazy or are just socially awkward or whatever reason. People that don't like networking, there are books out there for you as well. Um, and this is just a small sample of all of the, the books that are available out there. If you, if you follow enough of the links, if you go to Amazon, it gets, it gets pretty weird after a while. <laughs> I won't say any more uh, about that. Okay, so in addition to the books, uh, if you get online, you'll find that there are all sorts of uh, online workshops and webinars that you might take. One of the biggest is sponsored by American Express. and takes you through a series of modules, and by the end of it, you're supposed to be an expert networker. Uh, if all this isn't enough, well, you can enroll in a semester-long course at a university uh, devoted to networking. Here's one that's coming up at Rice University in the US, uh, The Art of Networking. Um, now, once you're ready to apply all of this knowledge in the field, there's no shortage of networking events uh, that, are, that you might attend. Um, usually, they're organized by industry associations. I'm on the mailing list of an organization called Ethicorp or something like that, and they, they host several events a week. One thing I noticed is that the price of admission usually varies depending on how important the attendees are, or how important the other attendees are. So uh, if the CEO of Microsoft is going to be there, it'll cost you five grand to attend. If it's the uh, ethics officer at Microsoft, it'll gold coin donation or something. Um, so you've even got whole businesses that their, their whole function is to organize networking events. And this was one that was launched in 2003 in my hometown, well, not in my hometown, in the town that I'm currently living. In Canberra, it's called Schmooze, uh, and that's the founder there with the, the dog, uh, and this is what it promises, quote, to facilitate introductions and targeted business development opportunities, but all done in a personalized manner, okay? So they host about 80 events every year, ranging from intimate dinners uh, and lunches to cocktail functions for more large group networking, okay? Now, given how ubiquitous networking has become, um, it's 
surprising to me that ethicists and philosophers haven't really kept up with this. There's a rare exception. There's an article that appeared in Business Ethics Quarterly over a decade ago by a guy called Jonathan Shonchek, and he was interested in whether uh, networkers use one another as mere means and therefore violate Kant's categorical imperative. So he was interested in whether the networker does any injustice against the networkee, okay? And he, he arrives at the conclusion that they don't. There's nothing. There's no problem here. Uh, I'm going to look at a an alternative argument, and I think a more formidable argument, which focuses instead on whether the networker does any injustice against the people outside of the network, okay? Whether he's seeking some kind of illegitimate advantage. All right. So um, first. Uh, a few preliminaries. If you look at the literature, sometimes you'll see a number of different forms of networking get distinguished. There's utilitarian networking, emotional networking, and virtuous networking. Um, I think the, the guy that first came up with this taxonomy uh, is Dominic Mele in the Journal of Business Ethics. Um, so utilitarian networking this is a quote from Mele, is made with the intention of obtaining benefits related to economic advantages. Networking may be a practice to find jobs, clients, and contracts to be promoted faster and at a younger age, to get advice in difficult, in difficult situations, or to acquire useful information and resources. Utilitarian networking. I don't really like the language that's being used here, but let's just go with it. Um, so that's utilitarian networking. Emotional networking is described as being motivated by the desire to have a pleasant relationship. Just that. Um, virtuous networking is described as networking which is motivated by a quote, a positive moral intentionality towards others. And by that, it seems that they just mean a non-instrumental concern for the well-being of others. I'm just going to focus on, on this, on utilitarian networking. And that's partly because I think the, the taxonomy is over-inclusive. Right, what they call emotional networking just seems like plain old socialising, and what they call virtuous networking just seems like plain old altruism or friendship. So I really think this is what networking is all about. It was once aptly described as socialising with an economic purpose. Right, so that's what I'm looking at. And I'm going to be even more specific. I'm focusing on networking which is aimed at career advancement, and even more specifically, I'm looking at networking, the aim of which is to, to help you prevail in a formal competitive process for a job at some point in the future. Okay? That's what I'm, what I'm interested in. So admittedly, I'm not talking about all networking, just net networking with these particular ends. All right. So the, the paper is split into two parts, and each part works with a different understanding of networking, of what networking is about and how it's supposed to deliver this competitive advantage. Um, so the first account of networking says networking is, is essentially about building personal relationships. And the second account says networking is about demonstrating one's merit to prospective employees, uh, employers, selection panelists and so on. Um, so I'm going to suggest that no matter which of these characterizations you accept, uh, we're faced with a moral problem. Okay? It's a different kind of moral problem depending on which of the two you accept. So 
I'll start with the first one. Uh, and I start with what I take to be a relatively uncontroversial assumption, which is that jobs that are the objects of competition, and you can extend this to, say, university placements, uh, but I'll just talk about jobs for, uh, to keep it simple. Jobs that are the objects of competition ought to be awarded on the basis of merit. Okay? So the job should go to, uh, should go to whichever candidate is expected to fulfill its associated tasks most competently and efficiently. Uh, to make the most, to be the most successful in the role and to therefore make the most valuable contribution to the organisation, all things considered. And typically a number of things will factor into this equation of who's the most meritorious. Uh, formal qualifications will obviously count, but there will also be experience, demonstrated work ethic, so on and so forth. Uh, our meritocratic ideal essentially says that only these considerations and only insofar as they're relevant to a candidate's suitability for a particular job, only they may, they may be taken into account. And a corollary of this is that considerations that have nothing to do with one's relative merit should not influence the selection process. Uh, that's why we object to certain forms of discrimination in hiring and promotions. So uh, one's sexual preference or racial identity or gender these things can't legitimately be presumed to, to track one's merit or job worthiness, and so for that reason they ought not to be taken into account. Okay, so that's why we object to discrimination. Uh, our, our commitment to meritocracy is also why we object to, say, nepotism, favouritism shown towards uh, family members, insofar as your family ties uh, don't tell us anything about your, your merit, um, they, sh they shouldn't form part of the selection process. Now, on one understanding of networking, it seems to involve uh, seeking non-merit-based favour, right? So I'll come back to, to Misner. Um, all right, so he, here's the advice you'll find in this book. He says, while the ultimate goal of networking is, is economic advantage, overtly hunting this outcome is a flawed strategy. So going around and asking for jobs and references, proposing mutually beneficial exchanges, soliciting funding, so on and so forth, that's, that's not the way to do it. Uh, hunting doesn't work. What he suggests is farming. Farming is how you network like a pro. And this is what he, he means. The idea is you build a rapport with people that might be in a position to benefit you at some point in the future. Um, you endear yourself to them and you win their goodwill. These seeds will reap a bountiful harvest, he says, so drop the gun and grab the plough. Okay. And you'll find similar advice if you, if you read the book How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Very similar advice. That was once described as the timeless Bible of networking. Alright, so the main purpose of networking on this view is the ingratiation of the networker to the networkee. The effective career networker makes himself known to and liked by employers, selection panellists and so on and so forth. If all goes according to plan, these people will take their fondness for the networker into account when making decisions that affect his or her career. If these decisions, uh, if these decisions affect, uh, include the awarding of, of jobs or contracts, then the networker will have successfully garnered non-merit-based favour. 
That's the whole point of what he's doing. Okay? So, it seems like on this account, the network is seeking non-merit-based favor. Now, the question is, does that necessarily make his behavior uh, immoral, or does, does it follow that he's seeking some sort of illegitimate advantage? At first, I thought yes, but now I'm not so sure, and here's why. So, So some methods of seeking non-merit-based favor strike us as clearly unacceptable, and bribery is the obvious example here. When Andy bribes Barry to get a job that many people are competing for, uh, Andy's trying to induce Barry to consider things other than merit in a process where we agree merit is the only relevant consideration. Okay? Whether or not the bribe succeeds, whether or not it's taken, still, Andy is trying to induce a, dis, uh, a deviation from meritocratic norms, and that's why we find it objectionable. So it remains an attempt to distort the meritocratic allocation of positions that justice demands. So that's bribery, but there are other cases where seeking non-merit-based favour may strike us as, as relatively unproblematic. I'll give you a few examples. So non-merit-based favour and disfavour come in many forms, uh, racism, sexism, nepotism, they get the lion's share of attention. But you've also got heightism, weightism, uh, and lookism. So by now there's, there's a, a body of empirical research showing that a man's position on the corporate ladder tends to be very strongly correlated with his, his actual height, all other factors controlled for. Uh, there's also evidence to suggest that better looking people uh, tend to receive preferential treatment, and that overweight people are the victims of an unconscious uh, but widespread and often very powerful bias in the, the job market. Now, this is an unjust state of affairs insofar as one's height, weight, looks and so on don't track one's merit. These personal attribute, attributes shouldn't morally affect one's job prospects. Okay, I think we can agree on that. Having said that, it's not clear to me that trying to capitalize on these biases is necessarily wrongful conduct. So picture a man that goes to a, if I were to go for an interview knowing this, if I were to go to an interview at some corporation, I'd probably wear lifts in my shoes to just give myself that extra inch. Okay, so I know this bias exists and I'm gonna act in a way to try and take advantage of it. Or you might think of an even more kind of mundane example. Uh, a woman who knows full well that applicants that are prettier have stronger, stronger prospects so she gets her hair and makeup done professionally before an interview. Now you might say, well, this is unproblematic behavior. There's nothing wrong with trying to look good for an interview or uh, wearing shoes that give you an extra few inches. Now, if that's right, then at least sometimes it's permissible for an individual to try to gain non-merit-based favor in a process where we agree that the existence of non-merit-based favor is unjust. This might seem puzzling, but it seems like sometimes it's okay for you to seek an advantage that morally you shouldn't have. Right? So here's the question. If wearing makeup to an interview is permissible, despite the fact that it involves an attempt to gain non-merit-based favor, clearly we need to be more precise about why bribing one's way into a job is objectionable. Okay? It can't simply be that the bribe payer is seeking non-merit-based favor. And to this end, we might put forward the following response. Um, the bribe payer 
is inducing a deviation from meritocratic norms by conferring benefits upon the relevant decision maker. He's trying to buy something that should not be bought and sold, essentially. Now, on, I think this answer's on the right track, but it's a little bit too narrow. The bribe, pay, the, the, uh, bribe payer, his actions are objectionable because he's inducing a deviation from meritocratic norms, but I think that inducing a deviation from meritocratic norms is just a specific way of affecting a deviation from meritocratic norms. So I'll give you an example to try and make clear what I mean. And it's kind of a far-fetched hypothetical, but Andy's applying for a job at Barry's factory. Andy has heard that Barry has a reputation for being nepotistic. Okay? So he gets on that website, Ancestry.com. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, they advertise it on TV all the time. And he browses around on this website. For, after several hours, he finds that there's actually some link between, some genealogical link between himself and Barry, the guy whose who's, uh, company he's applying for a job at. So he decides to kind of bring this up during the interview at some point in the hope of engaging Barry's nepotistic leanings, right? In this scenario, Andy's scheming to, to gain a non-merit-based advantage over other applicants, but he's not offering anything tangible to Barry to induce this. Still, I think we'd regard Andy's behavior as morally unsavory at least. The mere fact that he's attempting to affect a deviation from the meritocratic alloc allocation of jobs, that seems bad enough. The mere absence of an inducement doesn't seem to, to matter all that much, or certainly doesn't exonerate him. Okay? Now contrast this to the, to the applicant getting her makeup done professionally. Her act is not of a kind that affects non-merit-based favour. The bias towards better looking people is already operative in the minds of the selection panelists. The applicant is merely trying to maximize her chances of being the beneficiary of this bias. So in other words, the applicant may be exploiting non-merit-based favoritism, but her behavior is not instrumental in its production. Whether or not she wears makeup, the scourge of lookism is such that appearance-based bias will remain a factor and will contaminate the process. Okay, do you get the distinction I'm trying to make here between exploiting and actively cultivating or affecting non-merit-based favor? So with that in the background, we might put forward the following as a general principle. Deliberately affecting non-merit-based favoritism is impermissible, but merely exploiting it is not. So when Andy bribes his way into a job that many are competing for, his actions are wrong because they actively cultivate non-merit-based favor. Andy's actions are of a kind that introduces non-meritocratic distortions into the selection process. The same charge can be brought against Andy in the Ancestry.com hypothetical. Uh, Barry's nepotistic leanings are inactive until Andy deliberately engages them, thus affecting a departure from meritocratic norms. And now the all important question is, on which side of this divide does networking fall? Is it a case of trying to affect a deviation from non-meritocratic norms, more akin to bribery, or is it like wearing makeup to an interview to capitalize on an existing distortion or, exi or an existing bias? Um, it's not entirely clear to me, but if I had to choose, if I had to go one way, I'd say it's more like the case of bribery. It's more like affecting uh, a, a non-meritocratic distortion. So just picture an employee selection procedure 
where none of the selection panelists has met any of the candidates. Everyone's a relative stranger. Uh, you might have other distortions in play here, racism, sexism, and so on, but favoritism based on personal affections isn't one of those distortions because everyone, everyone's a stranger. Now imagine a second scenario where a couple of the candidates have successfully networked the selection panelists at a cocktail function earlier in the week. The candidates attended this function precisely to meet and to ingratiate themselves to the selectors as per the advice found in all those self-help books. Uh, in this scenario, personal affections might come to influence the selection process and that's precisely the state of affairs that the networkers contrive to bring about. So plausibly, if, correct, if career networking is about building personal relationships to improve your prospects of prevailing in a formal competitive process for a job, the networker is trying to affect a deviation from meritocratic standards. And if this is what underpins our objection to bribery, uh, then should we not, on pain of arbitrariness, condemn networking on the same grounds? That's essentially my argument. Okay? And I also think we should be careful not to exaggerate the differences between the methods that the networker uses and the methods that the bribe payer uses. Okay, so we said that, look, the bribe payer, he's seeking to induce a deviation from the meritocracy by, by making offers. Whereas the networker doesn't seem to be offering anything to his audience, so we can't sensibly say that he's inducing anything. Um, but no, if you, look at, if you look at the advice found in one of the books that I mentioned earlier, How to Win Friends and Influence People, The Timeless Bible of Networking, it really has one piece of advice. Make your audience feel interesting, important, and accomplished, and they'll love you for it. That's how you get favor. Now, if that's right, well, then maybe the networker is offering something to his audience, which he hopes will be repaid with favorable treatment. He's offering some kind of ego boost or sense of self-satisfaction. The only difference may be that the, the bribe payer is offering material benefits, whereas the networker is offering, offering psychic ones. But I don't really want to pursue that any further. I just thought I'd, I'd throw it in. Okay, so that's the first argument. Okay, it says, if networking is about building personal relationships, you're trying to corrupt the process. Trying to corrupt the process. That's really what I'm saying. Now, maybe everything I've said so far... is just based on a, a fundamental mischaracterization of networking. So maybe the networker, rather than attempting to foster and benefit from non-merit-based favoritism, he's trying to demonstrate that he is in fact the most meritorious. Now, after all, if you think about it, merit is about more than formal qualifications. Social and communi communication skills might count, confidence might count, assertiveness might count, at least in some cases, for certain jobs. These might be attributes which make you suitable for a particular position. They might be bona fide qualifications for this particular role. You know, the effective networker, you might argue, is putting these skills on display. Should he thereby impress his audience and be selected for jobs ahead of other candidates in future selection processes, he's achieved this by proving his merit rather than by influencing the audience to consider things other than merit when making their decision. Right? 
So that, that's the second understanding of networking. But even, I think this is a more charitable understanding of networking, but it still raises ethical problems. And to see this, consider other adversarial contexts where winning involves impressing or persuading judges. And where there is a formal process that gives competing parties a structured setting within which to do this. In these other contexts, uh, a competitor that attempts to win the judges over outside of the formal process is thought to be seeking unfair advantage. So take, for example, the most obvious comparison I could think of here uh, is a lawyer, an attorney, that telephones the judge uh, after the strike of the gavel sometime at night to discuss the substance or merits of a case. And this practice is known as earwigging. After the, I think there's some kind of insect that crawls into your head and lays eggs there or eats your brain or something. They call this earwigging. Um, and this is regarded as a serious breach of legal ethics. It's contempt of court, actually, if you, if you try and earwig the judge. Now, importantly, the earwigging attorney, he might not be attempting to introduce dubious considerations into the judge's mind, but we object to his actions nevertheless. We object simply because he refuses to compete within the parameters of a formal process that's been established to regulate the contest in a just way and to give all parties an equal chance of winning. That's why we object to, to earwigging. So my general question here is, isn't networking to personnel selection what earwigging is to legal proceedings? Okay. Where a job is the object of competition, prevailing involves impressing a judge or judges. Typically, there is some formal process that gives competing parties a structured setting within which to do this. In larger organizations, the human resources department will devise and administer a process with the intention of ensuring, among other things, fairness in personnel selection. This fairness consists in a number of standards being met. Um, one of these standards is what they call the standard of consistency, just means that all candidates are invited to submit the same application blanks, to sit the same tests, the same interview procedure of the same duration, and so on and so forth. And the idea here is to ensure that all applicants have an equal opportunity to demonstrate their merit. That's the procedural component of meritocracy. The, the substantive component says only merit-based considerations may be taken into account, the procedural component says everyone has to have an equal chance of demonstrating their merit. And the idea is uh, th the substantive component is meaningless without the procedural one. Okay, so with, with jobs you have this formal selection procedure devised by the Human Resources Department which is geared towards these morally just ends of give it, giving everyone an equal opportunity to demonstrate their merit. The networker refuses to confine his competitive efforts to this formal framework. Right? His strategy is to begin impressing prospective employers and selection panellists in advance of the official contest. So to win points with the judges before the opening bell. So again, if earwigging is prima facie wrong, why shouldn't this judgement carry over to networking? And obviously there are differences between earwigging and networking and we'll need to consider those. Um, but before I, I turn to that, I think it's really important to be clear on, on why earwigging in legal advocacy is a moral problem. Okay, that's going to really help the analysis here. 
So one possible answer for why earwigging is wrong is this. Uh, fairness demands that both parties in a court case have an equal opportunity to persuade the jury uh, and or judge. The formal legal process is designed to give is designed to ensure this equal opportunity. The earwigging attorney, by advocating in private before the trial has begun or between sessions, is effectively attempting to gain more than an equal opportunity and thereby to consign the competition to less than an equal opportunity, which is unfair. Okay? That's kind of my first attempt at explaining what's wrong with earwigging. But it doesn't quite work, this explanation, and here's why. So thinking of another kind of hypothetical, imagine the following scenario. Andy's the, the prosecutor, Barry is the defense attorney. One night, uh, Andy calls the judge to earwig him. And Barry finds out and is incensed. And, and Andy responds as follows. Mate, you've got the judge's number as well. I'm not stopping you from calling him. Go right ahead. Here, use my phone. Give him a call as well. Okay, so what's, uh, what's Barry saying here? Sorry, what's Andy saying here? Essentially, he's denying that he's given himself more than an equal opportunity to present his case. He's just, he's saying that he's simply taking advantage of an opportunity that is available to both himself and to Barry, but that Barry has chosen not to exploit. They could both call the judge, and Andy's saying, I'm just the only one that's decided to, to use this opportunity. That's not my problem that you're not using it. Okay, so how would we... I suspect we wouldn't take this seriously as a justification or as an excuse for the earwigging behaviour. So why not? Here's why not. Well, here's my attempt at an answer. We feel that while, while Barry could earwig the judge as well to equalise his opportunity, God damn it, he shouldn't have to. He shouldn't have to equal, earwig the judge to equalise his opportunity. So how do we cash this out in terms of some more general moral principle? I'm going to submit that the wrong-making feature of earwigging is that it violates a certain procedural right that competitors have, which we might for convenience call the right of bounded competition. I don't really like this language either, but it's the best I could think of. If you have suggestions, I'd like to hear them. But the right of bounded competition, this is what it says. In a contest, in a contest where winning involves impressing or persuading judges, and there's a formal process to, designed to give all competing parties uh, an equal chance of doing this, one is entitled to compete within the confines of the formal process without suffering a relative loss of opportunity simply for doing that. Okay, so the idea is you shouldn't be punished simply for sticking to a morally just selection process, simply for confining your competitive efforts to that just selection process. The earwig, the earwigging attorney, he denies his adversary this right. He forces his adversary to venture beyond the formal process simply to avoid suffering a less than equal opportunity. Right? The other, the other attorney, he also has to now uh, uh, earwig the judge to equalise his opportunity. And you can see where this is going. At first glance, the networker is guilty of the same kind of thing. He seeks out opportunities outside of formal selection processes to demonstrate his merit to prospective employers. If those vying for the same jobs want to ensure that they have an equal opportunity to demonstrate their merit, well, they too must stray from the formal selection process. 
they too must network or find some other strategy of equalising their opportunity. So it seems like the, the networker, like the earwigging attorney, is infringing this right to bounded competition. Okay? The right to compete within the confines of the formal process without suffering a relative loss of opportunity simply for doing that. Alright, so now let me come back and talk about the relevant differences between uh, networking and earwigging and let's think about whether or not they can justify contrasting judgments on these two types of behaviour. Um, the most obvious difference, when I talk to people about this, this is the most obvious difference that they point out. Earwigging in legal advocacy is prohibited by established and accepted rules, whereas there is no rule against networking. Okay, so it's a sense in which networking, uh, earwigging is against the rules. So I'll give you an example. The term earwigging is actually unique to the US state of Mississippi, uh, and the circuit court rules of that state include the following. Rule 1.10, earwigging prohibited. <laughs> no, no person shall undertake to discuss with or in the presence or hearing of the judge the law or the facts or alleged facts of any case then pending in the court or likely to be instituted therein except in the orderly progress of the trial and arguments or briefs connected therewith, nor attempt in any manner except the stated above to influence the decision of the judge in any such case or matter. So that, that's one sentence. <laughs> okay, now while, while Mississippi alone is, uses this term, earwigging, uh, James Heltham explains that it refers essentially to private ex parte communications between the judge and the, the lawyers, uh, and the prohibition of this is a long-held legal tradition that extends far and wide. Okay, so we can say that earwigging contravenes a widely recognised and entrenched rule of this particular adversarial setting. By contrast, there's no rule against networking, uh, either explicit or implicit. So that seems to be a, a relevant difference here. Why does this make a difference? Well, you might say the rule, again, the rule is what gives attorneys the right to bounded competition. Attorneys can reasonably and legitimately expect not to be disadvantaged for adhering to formal selection processes because they can reasonably and legitimately expect not to be disadvantaged for adhering to the rules. Where there's no rule, there's no right to bounded competition, and where there's no right, then deviating from formal selection processes is no infringement. Okay, so networker can't be said to wrong his rival job seekers in the same way that uh, the earwigging attorney wrongs his adversaries. So that's how the, the stuff about rules is supposed to make a, make a difference. Alright, now I don't quite buy this because it implies that earwigging is what the legal scholars would call malum prohibitum. It implies that earwigging is wrong only because it's, it's prohibited by some law or rule. Uh, but I'm not convinced that this is the case. I think earwigging is, is not unfair because it's prohibited. I think it's prohibited because it's unfair. The prohibition reflects a prior and deeper moral judgment. Okay, so how am I going to back this up? Well, I tried to look around at other adversarial settings that are kind of relevantly similar but where our rule is is lacking. And th this is the best I could do. Beauty pageants and 
uh, school debating championships. Okay, and there are both in both cases there are kind of governing bodies that set forth certain rules. Uh, and I look through them, and so in both cases, you've got a competitive process that involves convincing judges or persuading judges. Um, now, in neither of these contexts do you have any kind of formal rule which prohibits the equivalent of earwigging. But imagine you've got this debating contest, contest that's coming up. One of the students that's debating tomorrow sees one of the judges in the lobby at the bar before an event and goes and decides to earwig the, the judge. And I think we'd, we'd regard this as you know, morally suspicious behavior. Same goes with, with beauty contests. Every competitor gets a certain amount of time on stage to, uh, to sell herself, to show off her grace and brains and poise and bleeding heart and so on. Uh, a contestant that tries to make contact with judges outside of this setting to make a kind of supplementary display of these qualities, I think we'd say she's seeking unfair advantage. Regardless of whether or not there's a rule prohibiting this, and there's not as far as I can see. Okay? So if that's right, then, then there's a prima facie moral obligation not to earwig the judge in legal proceedings, in school debates, in beauty contests, and this obtains regardless of whether the duty is enshrined on a, in a, a rule or a formal code of any kind. Okay, so I, that's my way of saying I don't think the absence of a rule can let the, can let the networker off the hook. Maybe the difference... Uh, maybe it's not the rule itself, but how the rule affects behavior. Or, here's, my more, here's, here's the more general point. Maybe the difference is this. The relevant difference is this. Maybe I'm being naive, but I assume that with earwigging, it's relatively rare. Okay? Uh, and that's partly because it's prohibited. A few people would risk it. Networking is ubiquitous. Everyone does it. And maybe this is a relevant difference. Given this, maybe the networker can make the following kind of justification. He could say, he could say this. Look, if I were the only person in the world networking, then perhaps I would be liable to the charge that I'm seeking more than an equal opportunity to demonstrate my merit. But everyone's networking, so I'm doing it just to ensure that I'm not consigned to a less than equal opportunity. My right of bounded competition is being infringed, has been infringed, will be infringed by the networking activities of others. So to mitigate the adverse effects that this will have on my career prospects, I'm joining the party. A moral code which prohibits me from networking is unreasonably demanding in the self-sacrifice that, re that it requires. All of these other people are networking. If I don't follow suit, I'm going to be at a disadvantage compared to them. So maybe that's the justification here. That's the relevant difference between networking and, and earwigging. So, in other words, the, net, the networker might say that his is an act of self-defense, essentially, rather than an act of career advancement. He's, he's just trying to make sure that he's not being disadvantaged by the networking activities of others, given that it's so widespread. Uh, and I actually have a little bit of sympathy for this, but this, there's a problem. While lots of people network, lots of people don't. As we saw, a lot of the self-help literature 
is devoted to, at least some of, it, some of it is devoted to people that don't network and that don't like networking and haven't been able to bring themselves to do it. Uh, other people might be willing but unable to network. As I mentioned, a lot of these events are obscenely expensive. So maybe some people just can't afford to attend these kinds of events where the highly effective networking takes place. Whatever. Um, there, are, there are people out there that don't network and these people are going to be in the, uh, as part of the contest for jobs. So what does that mean? Well, if I'm networking to ensure that my opportunity to demonstrate merit remains equal to that of other networkers, I will at the same time be giving myself more than an equal opportunity that is enjoyed by non-networkers. I'm giving myself extra opportunity relative to them. So essentially, another way you might think about it is I've become part of a group whose pattern of behaviour denies the right of bounded competition to members of some other group. I've become part of this group, networkers, who denies this, this right that I've mentioned to non-networkers. There's collateral damage, right? That's another way of saying this. There's collateral damage. My, my act is a defensive one, but unfortunately there are these other people who are not networking and I'm going to give myself more than an equal opportunity relative to them. So given this, my justification, it seems, has to, has to go something like this. I'm allowed to network in order to avoid suffering a less than equal opportunity vis-a-vis -vis other networkers, even if as a side effect of this, I put non-networkers in a position of disadvantage compared to me. So this may deny their right to, to bounded competition, but it's justified, all things considered. I can't be expected to surrender my equal opportunity by exercising self-restraint in a context where so many other people aren't exercising self-restraint. Uh, this kind of reasoning isn't unfamiliar. Uh, in cases where an individual is defending himself, we often feel that his actions are permissible, even if some collateral damage is to be expected. The doctrine of double effect right, says that an act of self-defense can be justified even where it harms innocent bystanders, as long as this harm is merely foreseen and not intended, and as long as it's proportional to the good uh, anticipated. And so maybe the networker can invoke something like the doctrine of double effect here. He can say, my actions have collateral damage, but they're nevertheless justified defensive acts, all things considered, because I need to protect myself against suffering uh, an, an unfair disadvantage. Even if we accept this, and I think we should be somewhat reluctant to, because if you think about it, it it's, looks a lot like the kind of defensive doping argument. Lance Armstrong and Ben Johnson and whatnot. I saw Ben Johnson, the Canadian sprinter on, on TV not long ago, and he was saying something like, uh, I wasn't the only guy doping on that track, uh, I was just the fastest one. Right, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of a def defensive justification, the idea being, if I don't use drugs, Given that everyone else is using drugs, I'm going to be at an unfair disadvantage. So I'm using drugs just to, to level the playing field. If we wouldn't accept it in that kind of context, I'm not sure that we should accept it here. But let's accept it. Let's accept this doctrine of double effect type justification for networking. Importantly, if we, even if we concede this justification, the justification concedes that networking is prima facie morally wrong. The doctrine of double effect is used precisely to show that acts which are presumptively immoral 
such as inflicting harm on innocent bystanders, can sometimes be justified, all things considered. The dominant view on networking, however, is that no moral justification is needed since there's not even a presumptive obligation to refrain from this activity. So this defence is actually radically at odds with current thinking about networking. Right? And I'm, I'm happy to settle for this conclusion. If I've convinced you that networking is at least prima facie wrong and needs some sort of justification in, ter in terms along the lines of the terms that I've just <coughs> spelled out, uh, then I've achieved something, uh, at least. All right, so let me just sum up, just to be clear about what I've said and what I haven't said. Um, as I noted at the outset, there are all kinds of reasons that one might network. It might be to find business partners and collaborators. It might be to gain industry knowledge. It might be to keep abreast of opportunities in the hidden job market, okay, to make sure you don't miss the chance to compete for certain jobs. And none of this strikes me as problematic. What I've argued is that there are moral limits on what one may permissibly set out to achieve through networking. Specifically, it's not okay to try and build personal relationships for the purposes of having them influence personnel selection. And it's not okay to try and demonstrate your qualifications outside of formal selection processes where this consigns other candidates to a less than equal opportunity. In the former case, one is attempting to corrupt the selection process. In the latter case, one is attempting to evade the selection process in a way that infringes the procedural rights of the competition. What's illicit then is networking with certain intentions or deliberately contriving to bring about certain states of affairs through networking rather than networking per se. Unfortunately though, what I've suggested are the moral abuses of networking seem to be among its principal uses and they're certainly the selling point uh, that the industry relies on. Thanks a lot.